chapter uh, 17, Revelation chapter 17, I'll be reading verses uh, 1 through 8. A few of you came in late, I meant to mention earlier, um, the um, uh, Susan had an uncle that passed away that they're at the uh, layout services where they're at, and uh, so I want to share that with you. Revelation chapter 17, verses 1 through 8, and uh, just to um, let you know um, from personal experience as a pastor, each time I saw a couple come in, it encouraged me a lot more. I, I feel a lot better than I did a few minutes ago. I know that our time is so short. Uh, when you go out, uh, a lot of times you can't get seated quickly at different things. We surely understand sometimes it runs into that, but we're glad that you're uh, here. Uh, Revelation chapter 17, verses 1 through 8. This is message number 50, uh, 50 in the book of Revelation. I've entitled this mystery, Babylon the Great, the Mother of Harlots. So we'll read verses 1 through 8 of uh, chapter 17. And there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, and I will show thee the judgment of the great horror that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of the names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, uh, full of the abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. And the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carrieth her, which hath the seven heads and ten horns. The beast that thou sawest was and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit, and go into perdition, and they that dwell on the earth shall wonder, whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. Um, in this message, what I'd like to do is give attention to some general truths that are taught in this passage without trying to identify the particulars of what and when it in particular is speaking of, and whether it's speaking of the past, present, or future. I've preached on this before, and you possibly remember my take and understanding, and we will deal with it more in general. But in my study of the Scriptures and studying to know how to study the Scriptures, we always must take a general approach. When you, um, I learned this from Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great preacher of the past, and he was also a medical doctor, a very good medical doctor. They called him the doctor, but actually he was a preacher, but also a medical doctor and uh, did practice, I guess, much of his life. But he gave the illustration of when someone comes in with an illness. 
He said the first thing that he would do as a doctor and had been taught and had learned is to look at the general overall condition of the person. You know, let's say they have a sore place on their hand and all you do is immediately look at the sore place on their hand and you miss other identifying marks by just taking a general observation overall of the physical, emotional, and mental condition of the person so that you can assess things properly. So when you come to a passage of Scripture, we, if we zero in just real quickly, well, what is this and what is that? We can sometimes miss some general truths that can be received, understood, and applied without really knowing all of the detailed particulars. And we'll see as we go through <coughs> what I mean. So much truth could be gained by general observations that are often missed because one gets lost in the details. And so when you study scriptures, understand the, the general picture before you look at the particulars. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, first of all, the first thing I see is that the enemies of the kingdom of God are on a grand scale. Look at verse 1. And there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with, uh, with me, saying unto me, Come hither, and I will show thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. In other words, this is a worldwide uh, religious system and evil but what I want us to see this afternoon, that it is worldwide. We know that this is instigated and organized by Satan. And so I want us to understand the power of Satan is a power on an international level. It says that this great whore sits on many waters. Well, let's see what is meant by that in verse 15 of chapter 17. And he saith unto me, the waters which thou sawest, where the whore sitteth are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. In other words, the waters represent where this whore has influence. And she has influence and power over people, multitudes, nations, and various language groups. And this is the diversity that is given for, for talking about the inhabited world, all over the world, you see. And so what we're seeing here is that the devil has power that reaches in an international sense. Let's think of Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12. I'll just quote it to you. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. This is telling us that there is a spiritual battle that is even beyond the scope of the inhabited world. There are principality and powers of darkness and wickedness. And of course, we know that there are powers of the kingdom of light. We see in Revelation 12, remember when there was a war in heaven and Satan and his angels were cast out. And so behind the scenes is a spiritual battle. And obviously the devil must be, uh, God permitted him, well, he had great authority 
initially, and God permitted him to continue with that power and authority that now is usurped. It is now used against God, but God has not completely destroyed him and confined him to inactivity at this point. In his purposes, he is still uh, letting the devil execute great power. And we see this because this harlot, he is the one that's instigating the formation of this harlot, which uh, demonstrates the great kingdom of darkness. Now, when I just quoted from Ephesians, and I know I've taught this many times, but I like to go a little further each time. I think many times people misunderstand Ephesians 6.12 when it says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Now, because it mentions spiritual wickedness, and it mentions flesh and blood, most people just take the idea that he's saying that our enemies are not physical and flesh and blood enemies, that our enemies are spiritual. And that's it's not what it's actually saying. What you do, and when you study the Bible, is understand what does flesh and blood mean. I challenge you, go home and look up the expression flesh and blood and study each one in its context. And is it talking about material things as opposed to spiritual? Is it talking about uh, physical things as opposed to non-physical? What you will find when you do a study on flesh and blood, you will find that flesh and blood means to the Hebrew mind and to the early Christians, it means weakness. Flesh and blood is weakness. Flesh and blood represents mortality. It represents the weakness of men. It represents limitation of power. That's what flesh and blood means. The contrast that we are finding here is that we do not fight against weak enemies. The kingdom of God fights against very powerful enemies whose power reaches into the realms of the unseen principality and powers and kingdoms of darkness. So, what we find here is that he's not saying we won't have flesh and blood enemies. It is saying that the power of our enemies is not flesh and blood power and wisdom. It is spiritual power in high and dark places. I have, as a pastor, have dealt with people over the years who were enemies to the peace of the church and to the kingdom of God at times, and I found that they had a wisdom and an insight that was beyond their mental capabilities, that they were not coming up with things just on their own, that these were thoughts of the wicked one. Remember when Jesus rebuked Peter, when Peter said, well, you'll not go to the cross. And he said, get behind me, Satan. Now, what he was saying is that he knew that the thought that Peter had was not his own thought, that it wasn't Peter that came up with something that was in such opposition 
to the purpose of Jesus Christ, that this had been implanted by the wicked one, and hence he addressed the, the origin of that thought. Now, Peter expressed that thought, but it was not original with Peter. He had been persuaded and deceived by the wicked one. And so, in reality, when Jesus uh, was talking to Peter, and at that point, Peter was, in essence, an enemy to the will of God in his life. He's trying to get him not to do the will of God. But at that point, Jesus realized, though he had an enemy in the flesh and blood, he realized that the power of that enemy was Satan. Let me give you an example of what I'm trying to express here. 1 John 4, 1, I'll just quote it to you. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God. For many false prophets are gone out into the world. Now he says, try the spirit, or believe not every spirit, try the spirits. But when he gets down to the concrete aspect of things, it's prophets. He's not talking about spirits going around and whispering things in your ear. He's talking about false prophets coming into the church. And what he is saying is that these false prophets, which in flesh and blood are enemies, the doctrine and the power that they have is not flesh and blood power. They are being used of the wicked one. They're, they're, they have a spiritual power that is from the principality, uh, principality and powers of the wicked one. And so in reality... Our opposition, even when it's people, and we do have people that are enemies uh, to the cross of Christ, to the truth. When, what it, that passage is, in Ephesians is saying is that their power is beyond being mere men. They have a power and a wisdom because they're being energized by the wicked one. The false prophets are flesh and blood people, but their power and wisdom to deceive comes from the spiritual realm of darkness. Let me give you one more example. This is 1 Timothy 4.1. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly, or clearly, that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, now, seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, the word is demonion, where we get our word demons. So what he is saying is he, the Spirit of God, which gave this message to Paul to give to Timothy. So it's the Spirit of God speaking. When the Word of God speaks, it's the Spirit of God. He's warning us and, in, and instructing us that some shall depart from the faith. And those that have departed from the faith have given heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Now, the thing of it is, these seducing spirits and doctrines of devils come forth through actual people. There were people in the church that were teaching antichrist doctrine. The Bible speaks of an apostasy. Remember in 1 Peter 2, they went out from us because they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out to manifest that they were not all of us. That's an apostasy. Many of the false prophets began right in the church. But they were not genuine believers. And the spirit of the evil one stirred up and, and, and influenced their minds to hold to 
uh, doctrines and the wisdom of these doctrines and the power of these doctrines was orchestrated by Satan. Think of, uh, of uh, Muhammad. And, and he probably did have some kind of uh, an, uh, experience. The devil, he, probably, he didn't just make that up on his own. And uh, Joseph Smith and these different ones, they had a wicked power behind them. False religions. False religions would not exist if there was not a power behind them. If every religion was just of the flesh and had no experience and no power, the people would not follow that. But the power that they have is the power of the wicked one, you see. And so though our enemies many times are flesh and blood enemies, what he's saying is their power is not just the power of mere men. They are being influenced by the powers of darkness, And so we need to be aware of the devil's ability to work a system of evil on an international level. That's the first thing that we can see here. We need to understand that we cannot fight against Satan in our own strength and wisdom. That's what I see when I read this. How can I, in my own strength and wisdom, combat a spiritual being that can orchestrate such an enemy as this great harlot and the beast upon which it sits that came up out of the sea. And we'll see in a minute, if we go back and read, that was orchestrated by Satan. How can I, in my own strength, stand against such a being? And even how can this uh, church collectively stand against such a being in our own strength? It must be in the strength and in the power of the Lord. Now, furthering this same point, remember when Satan offered to Jesus the kingdoms of this world. This is Matthew 4, 8, and 9. Listen. Again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world. Now, once again, this is my understanding. Okay? I believe that these temptations took place in the mind of Christ. I don't believe he actually was taken to Jerusalem. Um, it says in Mark's account, he was 40 days in the wilderness. Um, he was tempted like we are. I have never been picked up and put in a bar or picked up and put in a, um, a house of ill repute. God, I, Satan doesn't go around and pick us up and plant us and carry us places. I don't think he necessarily did that to Jesus. Here's my proof. I'd been to Palestine, I'd been on those mountains over there, and you can get on the highest mountain you want in Palestine, and you will not see all the kingdoms of the world. The only way you're going to see all the kingdoms of the world is if they're brought before your mind. Now, the Bible teaches, and we know, that if a thought is an implant, and it's not your offspring, it's not something you love, for instance, if you're standing and someone uses the Lord's name in vain, and you hate that when you hear it, and it, but it goes through your mind, you have not sinned. You see what I'm saying? It's when evil thoughts arise from our hearts. And so the fact that, that Satan brought these either audibly or in some way before our Lord uh, would not be sin because his response to them were godliness. They were not his thoughts. They were interjected but they were not arising out of his heart. Uh, Once again, what I just said about the thing, that's just my take. If you don't see it that way, obviously each one's at liberty, and I would not have any problem with that. 
but that is just my take on the temptation. But what I want you to see in this temptation is listen uh, to what is said there. Uh, let me read it again. I started chasing a rabbit, didn't I? Again, the devil taketh them up into exceeding high mountain and showed them all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And he saith unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Now, Jesus did not say, Thou fool, you do not have such an authority. You know, he didn't say that. By Jesus more or less taking what Satan said at face value and approaching it from the fact that you only worship the true and living God is how he handled this. It makes one think, and of course other verses, that the devil does have this influence and power presently. We know that God is sovereign. We know that he's the Lord of glory and the, the earth and all things that fill it up are the Lord's. But he has permitted Satan to have a realm and rule in this wicked world because the world has succumbed to the kingdom of darkness and he is in the kingdom of darkness. So he does have an influence on these nations. And so there was a natural sense in which uh, Satan could have shortcutted instead of going to the cross and the temptation was to get authority and power, but it would be in a natural sense and not the proper sense. And so the whole thing was wrong from the get-go. But my point, he said, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. Um, I'll give you this pound from England. You know why I could give you this pound from England? Because it's in my hand. I can't say I'll give you a new car because <laughs> I don't have a new car in my hand. So by the fact that he offered these things and Jesus received it at face value, I assume that Satan does have such a power. Hence, again, making the point that our foe is very equipped and has great power. We can only stand against him in the Lord. Now, our last scripture on this point is actually going to introduce our second point. And that's 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4. I'll quote it for you. It says, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Now here it says that Satan is the God of this world. Now it's a little g, and the word world actually means age. So it is not saying he rightfully owns the world, or he uh, is the, uh, the authority in an absolute sense. God, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Psalm, I, I, I believe it's Psalm 29, if I'm not mistaken, maybe 24. Um, but he has power and he is in the realm of the principality of over the kingdom of darkness, which kingdom this world finds itself in. And therefore he has this a little g type of relationship to the world in the worldly system. And so hence again, we see the, the, the formidable power of the wicked one. Not to be discouraged, not to be made afraid, but to be counseled from the scripture that we need the power of the kingdom of God, the power of the word of God, the power of the name of Jesus Christ, the power of the gospel to stand against the wicked one. But now I enter into my next thought. And that is 
the devil is the god of this world, not just small portions of it. That's the thought that we were dealing with. But actually, my next point, and if you'll go back to Revelation 17, let's go back there, Revelation 17 and verse 5. Revelation 17 and verse 5. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and the abominations of the earth. Now, mother of harlots. What do I see there? I see diversity and yet unity. You have a, the mother, but yet there are many harlots that are associated with this mother. Now, the point I want us to see here is that there is one unifying source of all false religion. How do I tie that into what we just read? Satan is the god of this world. Now, there are many that are called gods, right? But in reality, every false god has the power of the one false god of this world, Satan. I don't care if you're worshiping the Antichrist doctrine of the so-called Jehovah Witness, or if you're following the Mormons, or if you're following Hinduism, you're following uh, all of these who is behind the gods of Hindu? When people worship the false gods of Hinduism, who are they worshiping? When Jesus told the woman at the well, said, ye worship, you know not what. Now what he was saying is that not just that they did not have the truth, but she did not realize what pagan worship is actually giving uh, devotion to Satan. Remember the, when he was talking about the pagan religions and some of the Christians thought, well, we have such liberty, we can have part in the pagan feast because we know there's only one true and living God. But he said, listen, don't you realize when you have parts in these, you're having fellowship with demons? It is demons behind these false religions. That's why we cannot have any part with these things. But what I'm saying, no matter how many false gods they all go back and are empowered by Satan. Even if a man comes up with a false religion on his own, it cannot maintain and it cannot have influence without the power of Satan. So when people are worshiping pagan deities and pagan worship, they're actually giving devotion to the God of this world. And there's only one. He's not the gods of this world. He's the God of this world. You see where I'm getting? There's a unity there. Um, there's a one unifying. So the mystery Babylon is one mother of all harlots. So there's diversity of religions, but it comes to the one source, the mother. Now, there are many that are called gods, but in reality, every false god has the power of the one false god of this world, as I said. And um, so let's go down here. The devil orchestrated a one world religion in the plains of Shinar, in Babylon. Remember in Genesis chapter 11, they were in the plains of Shinar. You know where that is? That's none other than Babylon. Matter of fact, Babel means confusion. And so there we find how the name has its meaning. Babylon represents false religion. That's where a corporate unifying false religion is first manifested. Now we know Cain was instigated by the, the evil one. But there, uh, the Satan gathered all of the people together in a, in a unified effort 
to um, have a religion because what was taking place there, they were seeking to make a name for themselves. You've seen pictures of what's called a ziggurat. Not a cigarette. It sounds like a cigarette. A ziggurat, those buildings that go round and round like that. Okay? And the idea is they would build those and then they would make sacrifice and worship on the top of the building. Sometimes it was astrology type of worship, some other things. And so this was a false religion endeavor. This was the people getting together. That's why God was upset with what they were doing. They weren't just in a building program. It was against God. And this was taking place in what is called Babel or Babylon. And so in the Bible, Babylon represents false religion. Who do you think instigated that first false religion? Now, the point I want you to see is that all the world, known world at that time were in unity. And that can happen again. You would not think that the nations could come together in a unity. But though they keep a diversity, there's many unifying factors within false religions. The one unifying factor is the idea of salvation by good works. And there's a way that Satan, if God permit, would be able to gather various religions together, finding a common denominator and bring them together. You know, you have the World Council of Churches and you have all these different... Have you ever seen the the ecumenical thing, you know, um, the, uh, I was trying to think, I really does have a place in the message, uh, I'm trying to think, it had the, the guy, uh, he was, uh, oh, never mind, it was just some silly thing, you know how you have autocorrect on a typewriter, someone else probably read that, I can't remember the third one, but it was something like you had a, a priest, a preacher, and a rabbit went into a bar. <laughs> the, the rabbit, though, that was the result of the typo. It should have been rabbi. But anyway, you, uh, uh, I know I, sometimes I have been typing, and what they thought, I missed the word so much that the word they came up with and put there was not what I meant. Uh, but there is a unifying and can be a unifying factor, uh, you see. Now, The relationship, the next thing I want you to see, that not only is there um, uh, evil on a grand scale, not only is there a unity. In other words, basically the harlots are after the nature of the mother. and, And so this all goes back to a unity of evil. Now the next thing. The relationship of the beastly governments and mystery Babylon is clearly taught in the book of Revelation. Look at 17.1. And there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked with me saying, Come up hither and I will show unto thee the judgment of the great hoarder that sitteth upon many waters. Okay. And then we find uh, verse um, uh, 2 with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication. The heavens of the earth have been made with the drunk, uh, with their fornic- wine of her fornication, verse 3. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw the woman sit upon a scholar- scarlet-colored beast, full of the names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Well, you remember, go back to chapter 13. Do you remember that? Look at chapter 13, starting at verse 1. 
And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the names of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was likened to a leopard, and his feet were at the feet of a bear, and his mouth is the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. Now this is referring to the kingdoms prior to the writing of the book of Revelation. These, and these are beasts. That's the nature of governments. They are beastly. They rule by fear and they're territorial. They want to increase and uh, so forth. And they destroy and they have a beastly nature. And this is referring to governments. He goes on down and then he talks about the, current, the contemporary government and rule of, of um, Rome, that's in verse 3. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. I don't want to go in that again, but that was the contemporary times in which the Apostle John wrote, and in reference to uh, Rome. But here we see this beast, and, and the point that I want you to see in a general sense is that this beastly government works with uh, this harlot. If you go on in chapter 13, you have the beast out of the sea, and then you have a beast out of the earth. Well, the beast out of the sea means out of the nations, and it refers to governments. The beast out of the earth is opposed to heaven, and it refers to the false prophet in chapter 13, the one that looked like a lamb, but it wasn't, and so forth. Now, the beast out of the sea was a composite of the prior kingdoms of this world and the contemporary Roman kingdom. Every world kingdom given place in the Scripture was against the kingdom of God. Think about that. Every worldly kingdom. Even natural Israel had times when they killed the prophets and stoned those who spoke God's word. God had to even judge the nation Israel in 70 A.D., the kingdoms of this world are beastly. They're against the kingdom of God. So we see in this picture the power of a beast and the seduction of a harlot. The power of a beast and the seduction of a harlot. These are the main two ways that Satan captivates nations. He uses beastly governments to put fear in people's heart not to worship the truth. It's like over in India right now. They want it to be Hindustan. They want it to be an, uh, uh, Hinduism, the national religion, and no other religion can be practiced. They're beastly, you see. And yet in the same way, if you ever go over there and see their festivals, and if you see Hinduism in its practice, I mean, they go to these festivals dressed in beautiful colors. They, have their, they don't just put a little dot over there. Uh, if you actually go to India, it's, I mean, the little kids, they'll have a big red wax, red uh, dot there. And, uh, and they have all kinds of festivities and uh, all kinds of beautiful things and uh, so forth. There's a seduction to it. And so the fear of terror and the seduction of temptation are the way the devil uh, up, uh, captivates people. He brings fear to them through the persecution of governments, and then he uses seduction. Look at chapter 17, verse 4. Revelation 17, 4. 
And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of fornication. Now, if you didn't see this as we see it as the children of God as being evil, what would that look like? A woman arrayed in purple and and beautiful red, decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup. I mean, that, that's beautiful. That's a seduction. And remember, she's a harlot. You have the mother there is actually the mother of harlots. So, I mean, that's the category. This is the chief harlot. And then there, which I, I used to think of that as just the Catholic Church and then you know, you hear it taught Protestant churches that came out of that. I think it is much bigger than that. I think the harlots, this is all religions, you know, and you have all religions came out of the spirit of Babylon. They all come out of the same paganism. I do believe and still hold to it that the Christian antichrist form of this is within Catholicism. There are three doctrines that are antichrist. Denying the Father and the Son, denying that Jesus came in the flesh, and denying that he is the Christ. The doctrine within the Catholic Church of transubstantiation denies the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Because they have Jesus Christ's body coming to you in the Eucharist. That denies that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. That's the only way he has come. He has come in the flesh, you know, as far as his body. They challenge the doctrine of the Father and the Son. They believe in the Trinity, most certainly. But they also teach an elevation of Mary. There's 7.5, what is it, 7.5 billion people. I think there's 1,300,000,000 Catholics. Now, you realize a billion is 1,000,000,000. So you got 1,300 million people. Let's say just 1% of those 13 billion people are praying, and they're praying to Mary. How can Mary hear millions of prayers a second? The only way Mary could hear millions of prayers a second would be that she would have to be in the Godhead. She would have to be deity. So though they teach the doctrine of the Trinity, they deny it by the doctrine of the adoration of Mary, and she's a holy matrix or mediator. And so there's this gold and silver. I challenge you to go and look at some of the presentations of the worship at the Vatican, which is actually a city in Rome, and uh, look, in, and it's, it's legally a city. It's, it's of its own jurisdiction and look at the meeting of the cardinals the pope and so forth and see if it does not fit the beautiful array that we find here but obviously this passage is not limited to that but all of these pagan uh, religions you see now this gives a contrast between true worship and that which is of the flesh and that's the last thing i want you to see well not actually the last but it's the last i've got time for he refers to it being fornication. In other words, our true relationship to God is only in a covenant, the covenant of salvation. 
And every man has the responsibility of worshiping God in a covenant of purity. So if you run after the world, that's an illicit relationship. Religion is not supposed to be without God. You see, there's only one true religion. So if you run after the world and you love the world, you're committing fornication because you're having a religious encounter without a covenant with God. You see, and so he refers to this as committing fornication. And that's what the world, spiritual, this is spiritual fornication. When the world worships false gods and they worship false things, every man was created to worship God. And the only way you can worship God is in a covenant relationship of salvation. Adam and Eve broke a covenant, and the new covenant is in Jesus Christ. So if you have worship, and that worship is outside the covenant of salvation in Jesus Christ, you are endeavoring to have a relationship, um, and yet it's a, a relationship of fornication. It's not in proper covenant. It's loving the world and running after the world. Now, these are such just some other things. I was going to mention about abominations in verse 5, which is idolatry and which is things foul and detestable. And so all of these things before God are foul and detestable. It's idolatry. False religion is idolatry. And then the persecution. Look at verse 6. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. False religion will not let Christianity go. False religion wants to persecute Christianity. Some more, some less, but all of them, they hate Christianity. Now they'll name the name of Jesus. Just a lot of your religions will speak of Jesus. But when you talk about Jesus coming in the flesh, Jesus being the Son of God, Jesus dying and resurrecting for sin. And no, they don't accept that. Islam will talk about Jesus, but Jesus never died on the cross. You know, Hinduism will talk about Jesus. He's one of the many prophets. But to say that he's the only true and living God, no, no. And so there's a lot of them that will name the name of Jesus Christ. But when you name it in truth that Jesus is Lord, Either governments want to persecute you or the pagan religions want to persecute you. That is the nature of things. And these are just generalities without really pinning down what this passage is talking about. This is just the general work of Satan. So, Brother Buddy, you come on and we'll sing a verse of, of song and invitation. And then 